Why did two conservative justices on the Supreme Court join the court's liberals to save Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in Allen v. Milligan? Will voting rights plaintiffs see more success in Section 2 cases in other states, including Louisiana, Georgia, and Texas? What are the political implications of the court siding with minority plaintiffs in Milligan? On Season 4, Episode 9 of the ELB Podcast, we have a voting rights roundtable with Professors Guy Charles, Ellen Katz, and Rick Pildes. Welcome to the ALB Podcast. This is Rick Hasten of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. On June 8, 2023, the Supreme Court issued what I consider to be a surprise ruling in Allen v. Milligan, a case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In Milligan, the court agreed with a unanimous lower court ruling, determining that the state of Alabama violated the act when it failed to draw a second congressional district in which black voters could elect a representative of their choice. The result will be that two of seven Alabama congressional districts are likely to reflect the preferences of the state's minority voters. The ruling was written by conservative Chief Justice John Roberts and joined by Justices Jackson, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Sotomayor, two conservatives and three liberals. Four conservative justices dissented. To understand the implications of this ruling, both legally and politically, I'm joined by some of the country's leading voting rights experts in a voting rights roundtable. Guy Charles is the Charles J. Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where he also directs the Charles Hamilton Institute for Race and Justice. Ellen Katz is the Ralph W. Eigler Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. And Richard Pildes is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law. Well, thank you all so much for coming on to talk about this show. We're recording it on Juneteenth. That seems like an appropriate day for it. And we're recording it before the end of the Supreme Court term. And so we don't really have a full picture of where the court's going to be with everything, including Moore versus Harper and the affirmative action cases. But I thought I would start by asking you, Guy, you had a post on the election law blog where you talked about how Chief Justice Roberts' opinion was kind of an ordinary application of Jingles, Voting Rights Act, jurisprudence, and how that itself was extraordinary. So I thought if you could just expand on that a little bit and along the way for those listeners who are not steeped in the details of the Voting Rights Act, what exactly did the court do here and and why was it just an ordinary application of existing precedent? Well, I think we've come to expect in in a lot of ways when the court is um, interpreting the Voting Rights Act, uh, and Bronovich is a pretty good example, that we're either going to get a statutory interpretation that is not what we expected, that the court will add and narrow uh, the statute, or we'll get a constitutional interpretation that undermines a statute like Shelby County versus Holder. And a case in which the question is whether the state should have drawn a second majority minority district as in Allen versus Milligan, and whether that's required by the court's um, major case in the area, the case of Thornburg versus Jingles, um, which essentially says, for all intents and purposes, if you have a minority population that is large enough, compact enough, that votes cohesively, and the majority um, votes against its interests and where there's po- racially polarized voting, right? So if you've got a group that is sufficiently large, that is sufficiently cohesive, that is compact, 
and the majority consistently defeats it at the polls and votes against its interests, where you have distinctive preferences, um, that you've met the statutory requirement to at least as a preliminary matter, make the case that there is racially polarized voting. I mean, that would case that, that um, you're, you're entitled to, a, to a, a, a second or an additional district, unless, you know, you get to go through now another set of analyses, the totality of the circumstances, but there's a presumption. Okay, so in this particular case, um, the question was whether the statutory requirements of Thornburg versus Jingles would apply in a relatively straightforward way. That is, if you simply look at what the court has done in the past, would you apply the statute in this case, and what would the ordinary finding be? Uh, and so for me, what struck me was that when you look at the opinion, it basically said, here's the legal standard. Um, we're applying the legal standard in a straightforward way. Here's what the lower court did. We're going to respect its findings of fact, and we're going to apply the appropriate presumption to the lower court's findings of fact. Here are prior precedents. Um, here's the legislative history. Um, and essentially did what, you know, if you taught this class, and then you gave the this case to your students, um, they would basically go through the analysis and essentially that way. So without too much of, of any surprises um, in terms of the case and the precedent and its application. So that's what struck me as unusual in the sense that our baseline expectations now have been either you're going to get a statutory interpretation that you did not expect that narrows the statute, or you're going to get a constitutional interpretation that um, fatally interprets part of the statute. And you didn't get that here. You basically got standard legal analysis. And on top of that, Guy, we also saw the court on the constitutional analysis coming out and saying, and by the way, Section 2 is constitutional. What do you make of that? Well, I'm not sure what to make of that. That's not something that I would take to the bank at at this stage. You know, I I, I see this case as I, mean, I think Justin Levitt used the term as well, like holding the status quo, basically saying this is what we've done. We've already we've always assumed that it was constitutional. We're going to continue to assume that Section Two is constitutional, and applying the same old constitutional as well as statutory legal standard. So that doesn't mean, and, and you know, I think Kavanaugh's concurrence is it makes a point here, that doesn't mean that the court is not going to revisit the question of constitutionality. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily interpret that statement as saying that, hey, we've resolved the constitutional standard, as opposed to saying we've said that it was constitutional in the past, and we're not revisiting that for now. Well, let me turn a little bit to Kavanaugh. And Ellen, let me come to you. Um, I think you had a post uh, on Election Law Blog where it ended, stay tuned. So just to back up for a second, there are six conservative justices on the court, three liberals, which makes it hard for a coalition to form to uphold a, a Voting Rights Act ruling. We, we saw in the Brnovich case a couple of summers ago, the kind of breaking down along traditional ideological lines. We didn't see that here. Roberts and Kavanaugh end up on the side with the liberals in uh, requiring the creation of the second majority minority district in Alabama uh, for uh, second congressional district. But Kavanaugh pulls back a little bit. So I'm wondering, where is Kavanaugh different? He concurs in all but a small part. 
And then he offers some of his own thoughts. And where does Kavanaugh fit between the chief and the liberals on one hand and the dissenters on the other? So as you note, I mean, uh, Justice Kavanaugh provided the critical fifth vote in um, in Milligan, um, and he was the only justice among those voting to affirm who actually um, supported the issuance of the stay the previous year, um, which might have suggested he thought the case should come out the other way. And in fact, you know, he said he didn't think the case was that close um, in, in his stay opinion. And as you note, he declined to join a small portion of the chief justice's opinion in which the opinion talks about being aware of race is not the same and redistricting is being motivated by it and um, a discussion about how race has to has to form a part of the analysis under Section 2 and the way Guy was just explaining. Kavanaugh doesn't join that. And um, it's curious in that he joins everything else and some of the propositions that the chief is making in this small section are necessary for the analysis that, uh, that Justice Kavanaugh joins. His separate opinion, you know, talks about Whatever you think of jingles, it's an old precedent. It's for Congress to fix. If Congress doesn't want to fix it, it's not for us to do, and I'm going to abide by it. You know, Guy just mentioned that the Section 2 analysis, um, if you were sort of to give the question to a class and how would they how would they write or answer on a test, they would write it. It would look awfully like, a good answer would look awfully like the way the Chief Justice parses it. The constitutional question, um, and to which... Justice Kavanaugh imposes a caveat that's quite significant, um, doesn't read that way. If you were to ask a con law class, um, you know, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act constitutional, if you were, you know, Alabama says, if you accept this interpretation that the lower court has, um, is the stat- the statute cannot be constitutional. And the answer you got from a student was the very short paragraph that the Chief Justice gives us. You might not give that, you know, that that's, that's not a great analysis of the constitutional question that's... Um, pending here. And it's the question that uh, Justice Kavanaugh points out, this temporal argument. Sure, Section 2 might have been constitutional when adopted in 1982, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening since then. The city of Bernie cases, the the tighter standard for uh, congressional action, the need for a tighter fit between findings and the remedy, and so on and so forth. Alabama doesn't really developed this argument in his brief, but it cites City of Bernie and it talks it talks about some of these issues. And the Chief Justice kind of just flicks it away in this very short analysis. If you think that Alabama's claim is if there's a discriminatory effect here, we could not have acted with discriminatory intent. That cannot be something Congress can reach pursuant to its enforcement powers. Congress needs to have a tighter fit between an unconstitutional uh, violation. And the Chief Justice pretty much says, we've been here, done that. Um, discriminatory effect is something Congress can reach, full stop, citing, I think, quite intentionally, you know, cases from 40 years ago and none of the more recent case law. And, and in this sense, that's not an accident. He didn't miss all of this other stuff. It's deliberate that it's there. He's not writing a 1L con law exam. He's doing something quite different. Um, you know, keeping Justice Kavanaugh on board most uh, prominently. The case, you know, in some ways reminds me of a, a case that I um, that you all will remember, but most people won't, which is a case from the light, late 1990s uh, called Lopez versus Monterey County. And it's a case that just sort of crudely resembles this one. Uh, the county came forth and said, you can't apply this as a Section 5 case. You can't apply this to us. We didn't have discriminatory intent. We could not have acted with discriminatory intent. And if you apply the statute to us under these circumstances, it's unconstitutional. 
And quite like this case, the court just sort of flicks it off and says, like, no, no problem. We've held this to be constitutional before. Sure, we decided City of Bernie. Sure, we have all this. No standards doesn't mention any of it. Just says, this is all completely constitutional. And there, long time ago, as here, you have Justice Thomas, you know, saying, like, guys, what about City of Bernie? What about all of these cases in which we've recognized that Congress's power is much more limited? This statute is a different statute than the one that was upheld in those earlier precedents. And the court seems unconcerned. So, I mean, I think it's right. It's a stay tuned. It's a wait and see. Um, they're, they're leaving space for another argument, but they're not resolving it here. Yeah, I, I was really shocked by the fact that Roberts doesn't even cite Shelby County a case which raises the constitutional questions, and that does seem to be quite deliberate. Before I turn to Rick, I just want to parse the the dissenters. I went back this morning and read through the dissents just so I can see. You've got uh, Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito, and Barrett, and they don't all concur in all parts. So I, I believe that Thomas takes the position that the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to redistricting at all, and that's only joined by Gorsuch. Alito takes the position that Jingles 1 means something different than it traditionally has meant, that it has to be read in a more race-neutral way. Gorsuch agrees with that. And then you have Barrett and Gorsuch, but not Alito, joining the part of the opinion that says that Section 2 is unconstitutional. And Alito just doesn't want to reach that issue. I, I just thought that those distinctions among the dissenters was kind of interesting and partially maybe strategic in terms of where they want to go on other issues. There's even this bracketing of the question of whether Section 2 con- includes a private right of action. Uh, and, and that's going to be an issue that may eventually come, work its way back to the court. So that I don't want to focus too much on the dissenters because that's that's not the law, but it does show that the, at le- you've got at least three justices who believe that Section 2 is unconstitutional and that maybe four. When Nick Stephanopoulos, who was the primary blogger last week, wrote about the case, he called it stunning. I think I called it shocking. Uh, but Rick Pildes, you, you were less shocked. And I think you, you saw more in the oral arguments uh, that, that this could be a closer case. And the other common wisdom that I think I and others put out is that this maintains the status quo. Uh, I think Guy said that earlier. Uh, you see this as potentially opening up more Section 2 lawsuits uh, being successful. So how do you see this Milligan case as being either consistent with or changing where things were from before the case? One question is, you know, how you assess it as a legal opinion. And then the second question is, what is it going to mean on the ground? And in my view, even though, as Guy says, it largely affirms the legal status quo, uh, I think as a practical matter, it's, it's going to be a lot more consequential than many people, I, I think, initially uh, believe. That's for a variety of reasons, but just to give you one specific example, in the 2010 round of redistricting, there was no successful Section 2 lawsuit uh, with respect to congressional districts. Uh, I I think it's highly likely that, at a minimum, we're going to have three successful Section 2 lawsuits now. This one from Alabama, when it gets resolved on remand, uh, the case from Georgia, the case from Louisiana. And so just right off the bat, it's very plausible that that there will be three new VRA districts required uh, in the South. In addition, uh, there are certainly Congres- ar- congressional districts. Congressional saying, districts, right? Just to be congressional clear. districts, correct. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, there's there's a view which I haven't analyzed enough to sort of know what I think about. But Texas, 
There may be additional Hispanic uh, DRE districts required as a result of this decision. And, and so what's different? What's different is that a variety of things have changed over the last decade. Number one, uh, there's much greater technological kind of sophistication available to search out potential VRA districts. Uh, this was done in the past, you know, by people who knew what they were doing and they could kind of do their best to try to figure out where additional reasonably compact majority minority districts could be created. Uh, but now these computer algorithms, which were used by some of the plaintiffs in this case, allow the plaintiffs, potential plaintiffs, to instruct a computer to see if you can find an additional 50.1% majority-minority district that is consistent with the state's general redistricting requirements in terms of trying to keep towns and counties and cities intact and being reasonably compact. Uh, it becomes easier to search out those districts, uh, number one. Number two, black politicians have come to accept, many incumbent politicians have come to accept that they can be safe in their seats while giving up uh, some minority voters. Uh, in the past, uh, I remember being involved in these debates going back into the 1990s when, number one, politicians, like all politicians, want to be in incredibly safe seats. Uh, but there was also not a lot of acceptance of the idea that uh, you could be diminishing the opportunity to influence elections in other districts or maybe even create another VRA district if you would draw down Black populations from levels that were actually not necessary uh, to ensure a reasonable opportunity uh, to elect in those uh, existing districts. So that's changed. Uh, in addition, we do have more experts involved uh, willing to come to the table in this decade than we had in the past. Uh, these cases are very time consuming, they're expensive, they require a lot of expertise. Uh, and so having more first rate social scientists who are able to do this kind of work, I think helps. And then in addition, there's been a tremendous inflow of financial resources to various uh, voting organizations, private law firms, uh, that litigate these cases. So the, the resources are available, the expertise is available, the technology has changed. Uh, we already know that we're gonna see more significant effects from Section 2 litigation even before this decision uh, than in the past, because these cases you know, looked pretty, pretty good in terms of traditional VRA litigation, even before Milligan. Then on top of it, the decision is gonna be significant atmospherically in the lower courts. This opinion, apart from affirming the status quo, this opinion could have been written with begrudging kind of language. There could have been qualifications or little seeds planted for potential other challenges to the VRA. You know, as I've said in a, in a, in a phrase Justice Chief Justice Roberts probably doesn't like, but I've said, you know, this opinion could have been written by Justice Brennan, the author of Jingles. There, there's not a single begrudging line in here. Uh, there's not a single qualification in here. So I think lower courts are, are going to get the message that, you know, continue to apply Section 2 the way it's been defined by Jingles, uh, and, and that's going to make lower court judges more comfortable uh, in just going ahead and straightforwardly applying that framework. What's all the more remarkable, for those who haven't studied John Roberts' history, and he gives the history of the debate over the 1982 amendments that lead to the current Section 2, is that John Roberts was working for the Attorney General working against the broad reading of Section 2 that Congress was considering. And, and, you know, the Dole Compromise 
which says no proportionality is the one that's where Congress lands. And, and Roberts was instrumental in that. He, he has some line, the attorney general also objected, which what he means is I also objected. As I thought that, you know, for Roberts, especially Roberts to write this, uh, channeling Justice Brennan or, or channeling Justice Kagan's dissent in Bernovich, you know, of like the South is still a problem. Uh, very different than the John Roberts we had even a few years ago in Shelby County, who does have that uh, enough has changed that we don't need these kind of race-based remedies anymore. Key. Yeah, just to um, support a point that Rick was making, if you if I had read the opinion and didn't know who its author was, I would have guessed that it was a Kagan opinion and not a Roberts opinion. Um, and Roberts rarely decides more than he has to. And I think that particularly the part 3B where he's talking about the race neutral benchmark, I think that's um, interesting and fascinating that he would even go that far, right? So just to, to the point of that Rick was making in terms of that it's not written in a begrudging way, I completely concur in that point. Ellen? I wanted to just add, I guess. I mean, I agree. I agree that it's not begrudging. Um, and I think one of the things that the opinion does, and this this may be disagreeing a little bit with Guy's presentation at the beginning, one can think about why the court took this case and, you know, why they issued the stay um, and intervened. And I think at the time I was not alone among folks who thought, you know, they're going to gut Section 2 and they're going to head in a whole different different direction. And it's possible there were five justices at that moment who thought who thought that. But I think there's another account of what the court is doing here. And if you go back and look at what Robert said in the stay, he says something, um, you know, he, he notes that the district court properly applied the voting rights of the Section 2 doctrine. But he also says something to the effect that there was considerable disagreement and uncertainty about the nature and the contours of a, a vote dilution claim. And, you know, we should think about that. I read that at the time, like they're going to gut this, you know, um, the voting rights act for all the reasons um, folks have already already said. But there's a, there's another way to think about that. That what they're doing, um, I mean, they generally don't take a case to affirm settled law. That's not a thing the Supreme Court is is uh, want to do. But in these circumstances, one could argue that affirming settled law is actually quite an accomplishment and that the uncertainty that the chief was talking about in his stay opinion was the uncertainty about whether section two jingles existing precedent that hadn't been limited by the other by the many other decisions was still good law and he emphatically non-begrudgingly says that and so that's a big deal and so to add to rick's list of things that were different this time around this is the first round of redistricting without the protections of Section 5 in place. And there was a sense one could look at what Alabama did in this case and said Alabama drew the plan that it did because it didn't think Section 2 was going to be enforced the way it was enforced. And that was not um, an unreasonable thing to think um, at the time. So the court's coming back here and saying, no, we mean it. Um, this is the law and this is where we're drawing the line is quite significant and gives a lot of guidance going forward and, you know, will affect things for all the reasons Rick uh, just said. I, I want to take issue, Rick, if I can, with your uh, comment about Chief Justice Roberts in Shelby County versus this case and, you know, sort of how can he do both of these two things? Because uh, I, I don't find that as hard to kind of grasp, I guess. Um, you know, to me, the decision in Shelby County was about what Congress had done or failed to do when it was updating the statute for the first time in, in almost 25 years. 
And, and the thing that, that I've always taken away from Shelby County that the majority was really fixed on was that the Congress had not updated that formula for preclearance in any significant way, and that it had not really looked into whether there were significant differences today in the covered areas versus the non-covered areas. It wasn't to say, I think Roberts actually included a sentence. Maybe people thought this was disingenuous, but you know, there is a sentence. It's, you know, this is not to say that there aren't still problems. The difference with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is it requires the plaintiffs to show that there's racially polarized voting taking place. So there's a contemporary foundation you know, for the claim that's required, that's built into the way Section 2 works. You can't win a Section 2 claim without showing today in the relevant jurisdiction, there's racially polarized voting going on. So that's the way in which I see, you know, maybe a little bit less tension there. Maybe that's why I was a little bit less surprised than some people. I will say, I still think Section 2 is vulnerable in various ways, not just the ways Alan and uh, Guy have identified. Uh, but one reason I thought I, I was not quite as surprised about this case is that Alabama as Justice Kavanaugh says, really required like a kind of complete overturning of the Jingles framework. Where I had always sort of suspected this court might go in terms of modifying the Jingles framework was in the definition of racially polarized voting. You know, I, I felt for a while that that's actually where Section 2 may be most vulnerable with this court, particularly as we have, you know, more uh, races with black candidates, white candidates, minority candidates, some Republican and most not. And the whole question of whether the way Jingles thought about polarized voting is the way this court is going to continue to think is the right way for identifying when there are systemic problems in a jurisdiction. So I do think the statute remains, you know, vulnerable to other kinds of challenges. I just thought this challenge was not a particularly strong one. And, you know, after all, it's Alabama, you know, and the racially polarized voting patterns there, as traditionally understood, are as stark as anywhere. Uh, and uh, a second VRA district in Alabama with a 27% African-American population, you know, it's Alabama has provided a lot of voting rights law over the decades, as I've said, and, and you know, this is yet another example. So I, I think that played into it a, a bit as well. I want to turn, oh, Ellen, uh, go ahead. I think that's all right. And, you know, this is a jingles one case. Um, so there's obviously room for uh, cutting back or uh, um, dis, uh, decisions that are I, I'll, I'll say less unequivocal um, about about the violation and the way and Alabama really did offer very little as you go through the chief's opinion in terms of the Gulf Coast community splitting the Gulf Coast community, but its willingness to split the so-called black belt here. Um, and just to follow up on, you know, defend the chief in this, um, you know, I, I you know, Shelby County was different. It was a different statute, a different reaction to it. What the chief said when he was an attorney at the DOJ, he was a, a different job then doing something else. And, you know, I think it's, it's worth maybe considering in this case that there is a similarity to the other Section 2 case in the 21st century in which the Supreme Court identified a violation of the statute, which is Lulock versus Perry, which is decided the chief is 
brand new on the court. He and Alito are adopting what is, you know, in some ways the most expansive view of the Voting Rights Act on the facts of that case, which is a curiosity. But there's a line in the chief's opinion in that in that case that I actually always come back to and I find it quite telling. And he's responding to Justice Kennedy's contemplation about the difficulty of, you know, assuming someone votes a certain way because of their race. And the chief says something to the effect of, out of fairness, if only to the district court, and, you know, so, you know, there was a trial and a trial, no one assumed anything here. And at a trial, assumptions give way to fact. And on fact here, there was racial block voting on the ground. Um, and again, like, you know, not to belabor the similarity here, too, there was a trial or not, a, you know, a long hearing, if you will, here um, that brought this case up hundreds of pages from, a, you know, a three judge district court. And out of fairness to the district court, he's very much taking the same stance. You know, the district court found all this. I'm going to uphold it. Um, and, you know, there's a similarity there that allows for us to distinguish what he said in Shelby County, as unhappy as I was and, you know, many people were at the time with that ruling. Um, this is this is different in many respects. Actually, also, so. to comment, if I can comment on that case for a second, because th- that's the case in which Roberts issued that famous line or infamous line. You know, this is a sordid business, this divvying us up by race. And I myself had actually forgotten for a while that he said that in the context of upholding jingles, in the context of taking, as Ellen said, a more expansive view of jingles than Justice Kennedy for the court took. You know, he could easily have joined Justice Kennedy and cut back on jingles in that way. So even when he's telling you how much he dislikes this regime, going back to what Rick said about, you know, his role in the DOJ, uh, you know, here he is saying, look, that that's jingles. I'm applying it. I may not like it. I'm telling you what I think. So I, I thought that was kind of, and, and I, I thought it was interesting. I myself had forgotten that that was the context in which he wrote that line. I want to focus more on, on John Roberts, the politician. And, and I'm going to come to Guy first on, on the politics of all of this. This is not the first case where it's plausible, at least, to, to tell a story of Roberts' making a decision to preserve the institutional legitimacy of the court. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the Namudno case, where uh, this is the case, the precursor to Shelby County, a Section 5 case, where the court, in order to punt the question, to give Congress one more chance to fix Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, to, to make it constitutional under the majority's view, he engages in, in a, an act of statutory interpretation that is completely indefensible in saying that the, this uh, utility district in uh, Texas gets the chance to bail out of the statute. And it's, it kind of reminds me of some of the things he did in, in some of the Obamacare cases. What do you think of the theory, Guy, that um, what explains Roberts' embrace and ordinariness of interpretation here is, has more to do with Harlan Crow and Dobbs that is, has to do with ethical concerns about what the Supreme Court justices are doing and the fact that the court is becoming more controversial as it's overturning precedents like the abortion case, that that's a better uh, explainer than, you know, uh, as Ellen said, deference to the factual findings of a three-judge court. Look, it's obviously hard to know. On the one hand, Rick and Ellen were both talking about the expressive message of this case to the lower courts. 
So you had a set of what was interesting about Alabama's argument at first is they basically thought that, hey, we just have to get up there and we're going to win. Um, this court is going to go with us because it's pretty clear you have a 6-3 majority. Of course, we're going to win. And the message that you were seeing from some of the lower courts is push the envelope as far as possible. So on the one hand, you could say, look, what the court did here is that it sent a message to litigants as well as to lower courts. Hey, you can't simply assume that because there's a conservative majority here that you're going to be able to push the envelope and we're just going to ratify everything that you throw at us and we'll make it work. So you might view this as uh, holding the line thinking about the legitimacy question. It's interesting how much of Roberts's opinion is directed, is engaging specifically with Thomas. It's also interesting when you read Alito's dissent. For Alito, he, it's a straightforward path to narrowing section two. That is not crazy. Um, right, sort of like a, like here's here's how I would do it. I wouldn't overturn it. I would simply narrow it. And yet Roberts refuses. So you might say, yes, he is really thinking about the court's legitimacy questions. He's thinking about the um, Thomas's ethics sets of issues, and he is holding the line. Now you brought up the mudno. Uh, Fernita uh, has said that look, she doesn't think that this case is the mudno. Again, I'm not willing to put those things off the table because there, you know, in the mudno, you had Roberts basically saying, "Here's the first section of how to hold this unconstitutional," but at the last minute, veering and saying, "But I don't have to do that. I can make a statutory interpretation." And then just a few years later. Um, he strikes it down on, on, on Shelby County. So if it is the political decision that we think that that's the right explanation, then it certainly makes the case that the constitutional question is not off the table. On the other hand, if it's Roberts being pragmatic and saying, look, I'm not so worried about Section 2. There aren't going to be that many Section 2 claims. It's fascinating that this is a case in which he says something to the effect of, hey, there are few Section 2 cases that win. Therefore, that's an, that's an argument in favor of maintaining the status quo. If you hearken back to the political gerrymandering cases in which the argument was there are few political gerrymandering cases that win, that's an argument for um, undermining, right, removing ourselves from that process, right? So here the argument wins, there the argument loses. Uh, so it could be pragmatic, it could be institutional. Um, it could also be that um, the, the posture, procedural posture of the case, um, right? So there are many reasons that, that are on the table. I don't think we can right now rule out any single one of them. And I do think that, yeah, again, we're, we're talking now today that we're recording is June 19th. Uh, we don't have the rest of the rulings from the court. Affirmative action in education is hanging over this case. And, you know, my first re reaction, as, as I wrote in the, in the Times, was, uh, you know, maybe this is a way to show that minority plaintiffs don't always lose before this court. And then you got uh, the Burkean case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act, 7-2 to two opinion written by Justice Barrett, uh, kind of affirming tribal sovereignty. I mean, I, I so far have found this, uh, this term to be pretty interesting and uh, surprising. Uh, Rick? Yeah, just on, on your question about how the larger issues with the court, you know, since Dobbs and Broome, the gun control case and other things might or might not have affected this case. 
Uh, I wouldn't focus on Chief Justice Roberts. I, I would focus on Justice Kavanaugh for that question. One reason you know, I was not quite as surprised as, as some people by the decision is I, I thought Roberts had basically made up his mind uh, that he was going to affirm here when he declined to vote for a stay. You know, if you have a pretty strong inclination to think the lower court is wrong, you're not going to let elections go forward under districts that are designed that way. Uh, so I, I think my take was that Roberts had more or less made up his mind back in January of 2022 uh, when he declined to issue that stay. He said this is a, an application of jingles. The lower court made extensive findings of fact, et cetera, et cetera. I think the question is better directed to Justice Kavanaugh. And one of the questions I've had in the back of my mind about this is I always am amazed when I think about how different the politics of the country might have been if Justice Kavanaugh had voted with Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, in the Dobbs case for the more incremental view that a 15-week uh, ban was, was Roe would be modified that way, but, but not overruled. I think the, the consequences for the country and for the politics and for the midterm elections would have been vastly different. In fact, I wonder how often it's been in Supreme Court history that one vote could have had such profound effects on politics and, and elections. And I wonder if Justice Kavanaugh has actually had that thought in the aftermath of, of uh, everything that happened with Dobbs, with the midterm elections uh, and the like, that Roberts had offered a more incremental, more minimalist kind of approach. He rejected it, went for the more extreme position. So I, I think your question is better directed at, you know, if we're going to speculate, I, I think it's Justice Kavanaugh that, that one would focus on for that. Ellen, I want to turn to you and give you the last word. And as you reflect on this, uh, you're stay tuned. I, I want you to kind of look into your crystal ball and, and tell us uh, you know, where we are with, with voting rights in, in five or 10 years uh, and what, what this portends. Yeah, that's a big question. I did want to just pick up on uh, a few things that both Rick and Guy said, which may or may not be fully responsive to your question. And, you know, I think, you know, the Chief Justice can't help but be concerned about the institutional role of the court when he's writing decisions. But this case, I mean, in contrast to some of the ones we've seen where he seems to be trying to navigate a more modest, whether it's in Dobbs, whether it's in Obamacare, whether it's, you know, a, a sort of more limited role for the court here, you know, he doesn't have to engage in a strange interpretation of statutory law. He's not doing anything that's indefensible, if you will. And to say that the, just, the Chief Justice sounds like Justice Brennan is a curiosity, given some of the other things that he has said in um, previous cases. And you can you can say he has changed his views in this case. Um, but, you know, you can still come back. And I think Rick is right about this. The lower court ruling wasn't close. Um, the lower court didn't call it that way. And the Chief Justice didn't view it that way. And Alabama made this easy for him in many ways. And this, I think, ties to Guy's point about the number of cases going down. There's a few cases. Why are there a few cases in the first years after Section 2 is amended? There are lots of cases and plaintiffs are winning lots of lots of actions. And, you know, beyond what they're actually winning and what we see in the record, there are all these settlements because there's all this low hanging fruit, if you will, that the statute's going after and it gets cleared out. And I think we can look at what's happening here in some ways as it's kind of growing back. Um, and part of that is because of Section 5 not being there and not entirely, but but sort of. And here the court is coming in and saying, no, we're going to keep enforcing this, at least in its traditional 
um, applications. And maybe this is a response to your question now, Rick. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. But that does suggest it's not going to go that far when we have future cases that are not so clear cut, that are not jingles one, where there's a decline in racial block voting, but maybe still a need for an application of the statute, at least on the view of some, the court might be like, no, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we had in mind. But here, where Alabama comes in on these facts, with these arguments, with this district court ruling, I'm not sure that the chief justice had a, chief justice had a struggle very much to say, no, I'm going to uphold the statute here as it applies. Well, we'll have to leave it there. It's been a great discussion. I've learned a lot. Guy Charles, uh, Ellen Katz, Rick Pildes, thank you so much for coming on to the ELB podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band BFN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.